0: A God, a Jesus, a Savior, to whom we can tell our hearts, which we can share without any fear. And we're thankful that you invite us to have that kind of relationship with you. As we open up your word, we would invite you to continue to speak to our hearts. That you would continue to reveal yourself to us. Now, we would continue to encounter the God who wrote this word for us today. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake and glory. Amen and amen. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. We're going to continue to look a few more weeks in the book of Esther, and today we're going to look at a sermon that I've titled, Jesus is a Better Missionary. And we'll see how that uh, title comes into play as we work through Esther chapter 8. If you are joining us for the first time, or maybe it's been uh, a few, well, if it's been nine, weeks. This is the ninth sermon. It's been nine weeks and you, since you've been here. Welcome back. If you're a member, never mind. That's a different sermon for a different time. But uh, just in case you've, you've missed a, a Sunday or two, real quick, here's how we get to Esther chapter eight. There is a king, Ahasuerus, whose Greek name is Xerxes. He's very powerful. He's in charge of the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time. He's got his right-hand man, whose name is Haman. Haman wants glory, fame, and honor, and Haman believes he deserves all that glory, fame, and honor. And he talks the king into issuing a law. That law says that if you don't bow down in Haman's presence when he comes into a room, you break the law and you are worthy of death. Haman nuances that law in such a way that it's not just the person who refuses to bow down who can be killed. It could be anyone that's connected to that person, which comes into play later in the book. Everyone goes along with that edict except for one man whose name is Mordecai, who is a Hebrew, one of God's people. Mordecai has been kind of an adoptive father to this young woman named Esther, who through a series of events has become the queen of Persia, setting by King Xerxes. Esther, one of God's people, is now in a position of power and influence. And Mordecai has watched over her, and Mordecai is now watching how things will play out. Well, when Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down. That enrages Haman. He uses that law to pronounce a death sentence not only on Mordecai, but on all of Mordecai's people. Every Jew, every Hebrew person is subject now to be killed because of this law, which would include, if she wasn't the queen, would have included Esther herself. So Haman goes, he, he built a huge gallows in his Backyard in order or his front yard in order to hang Mordecai on that, and he's ready for this to take place. And and as we saw last week, it was Mordecai who was spared; it was Haman who was killed. But understand that the death sentence, that law, and the death sentence of that law is still in effect. That is this law: that you will die if you don't bow out of Haman. That law cannot be reversed. It's something historically called the law of the Medes and the Persians that's in play here. Once the king, in that day, once the king makes a sovereign decree, it is irreversible. Though Haman is dead, the death sentence remains. That's where we are in chapter 8. As we work through this chapter, I think it will help us best understand the chapter if we look at it in three broad categories as we come to understand to our main point of how Jesus is a better missionary. Maybe the the first broad category that we can think about from this chapter is how a dynamic duo develops. We're going to see Esther and Mordecai, and they're going to really step up in their leadership as they come into this chapter. And they become really a, a powerful duo, a dynamic duo, who are able to get some things accomplished. And to help us understand that further, let me just tell you some, the, the, from the text some characteristics about them, which shows us why they're such powerful players when we get to Esther chapter 8. They had a couple of qualities. The first quality is this. Both Esther and Mordecai, they were able to couple their authority with humility. Most of the time when people come to places of authority, humility is placed on the back burner, right? Right? Usually when people come to places of authority, if you're given some new authority, your temptation is to seize that authority and maybe be a little bit arrogant, a little bit prideful about the spot which you have inherited. Let's see what happens in Esther chapter 8 verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. That is, that he's related to her. And the king took off his signet ring, that same signet ring that the king had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai, a transfer of power, a transfer of authority. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Haman had been in authority, but in this reversal, Haman was crucified in his own yard on the impaling rod that he had built for Mordecai, and Mordecai now takes Haman's place. Mordecai, in our context, would be like the vice president. He would be second in command. He would now become the right-hand man of the king. Not only does Haman die, but all of Haman's estate goes to Mordecai. Mordecai went from being powerless to being powerful. He went from not having any access to the king to having all access to the king. He went from some low-level job, entry job of the government standing in the city gate to being the vice president of the ruler of the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth at that time, all in one single day. He is given the king's ring, that signet ring, which is very important because it was equivalent to what would be in our day a legal power of attorney. Mordecai now has the legal authority of Xerxes, the most powerful man in the world at that time except the person who just called. <laughs> you should answer and say, I'm in church, and just see what happens. And then ask, why aren't you? Right? <clears throat> what does Mordecai, he just comes into this place of power, but notice how he humbly accepts this position of authority. He doesn't abuse that power. He doesn't use that power for his own good, nor does Esther. Some of you are in positions of authority. In fact, there are some of you who are here, or who are listening to us today, or watching us online. You have, you have resisted being placed in positions of authority or leadership that God has opened for you. And maybe God wants you to assume those positions because it's not about you or your fear of failure, it's about people and an opportunity to help them. And Mordecai. And Esther have this new authority, but they have it with humility. But there's a second quality that makes them stand out, and that's simply that they were passionate about people. They wanted to use this power, this new authority, to help people. They were passionate about people. Verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out his golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, who were all of the provinces of the king. And look at what she says. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther, we can kind of think that Esther is maybe in a safe spot. Esther is is queen. After all, surely she can find some claws to get out of this. She is rich. She's powerful. She's famous. But she's so emotional. She's so passionate. She says, how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? She's not concerned about herself. She's concerned about God's people Her concern is about the welfare of others around her. If you take nothing else away, and I hope you'll still listen after this, but if you take nothing else away, I want you to hear this this morning. There are only two things that are going to spend eternity with us in the kingdom of God. God and God's people. What really matters in life is people. That's the only things we'll have in eternity. God's people and God. Now, some of you may be going, well, there are some of God's people on earth. I don't necessarily want to be around that much. (laughs) Take heart, we'll be perfected. It's going to be a new deal when we get there to heaven. People matter to Esther because they mattered to God. What is the object of your passion? For Esther, it was people. People mattered. The third quality was that their love for people was genuine. Look with me in verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, the Jew, behold, I have given Esther to the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. What motivated Esther to do what she did? Why did she conclude that it's not about her but it's about others? What moved Mordecai to use his position to to advance other people and not so much himself? Esther and Mordecai have both come into a transformational relationship with the God of the Bible. And their love for people is genuine and real. They're no longer thinking about themselves. They're thinking about God's people because they love God's people with the same love God has loved them. There's your challenge for the week that should challenge you before the day is done. Do you love the people of God in the same way that God loves you? You see in Esther the heart of God, and God's heart is for people. His heart is to save them, to serve them, and to lead them. This dynamic duo develops, and they give us this example. Here's a second big, broad category in the chapter that helps us understand it. Not only do you see this dynamic duo developing, but you also see God's enemies are eliminated. The enemies of God are are eliminated, and I will tell you, the, the book's about to take a big emotional shift. There's a couple of options you have when you come to passages of scripture like this that we're about to read. One, you can choose to ignore it, or you can teach it. God said what he said, did what he did, and we need to study and learn from it. I'm choosing that option. Let's look at the text, verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted courier riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force or any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the province, of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adair. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to, key phrase, take vengeance on their enemies." So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. All right, what is happening? And why is it happening in this way? Remember that back earlier in the book of Esther, Haman set forth a decree. The decree that Haman set forth said that on a particular day, all of God's people could be killed. It's kind of like an ancient purge type of deal. That men, women, children, they could all be killed. this one particular day and their goods plundered. The enemies of God's people have been preparing for that day. They've been getting their weapons together. They've been drawing up their battle plans. They have been deciding who's going to kill who, who's going to take these children, who's going to take those children, who's going to get that land, who's going to claim the livestock. The enemies of God have been mapping out their strategy. This decree that Haman put into effect. This death sentence, remember, it was issued with the signet ring of the king. Per law, this edict is irreversible. They cannot undo the law. The day is still on the calendar for the people of God to be annihilated. It is still set in their fate. It's still approaching them. Mordecai and Esther cannot reverse this law, but they can write it a new one. And the new law that they write says that they have a right to defend themselves, that they have a right on a particular day to attack the enemies of God who would be planning to attack them. Their law says this new law to counteract the old, that they can defend themselves against their attackers and when you look at it carefully you'll see that this is a a justifiable decree of of self-defense you see Mordecai and Esther's decree if you look back in chapter 3 and verse 13 it's the same language that Haman used it's an exact reversal of Haman's edict they're saying look if we are attacked God's people can defend themselves even if the attack if we're attacked by women and children we can defend ourselves against them And we have the right to plunder their goods. This edict is an edict of justice. They are allowed to meet assault with justice. Notice the decree doesn't say go out in the streets, find somebody you don't like, take them out. Okay? That's not what the law says. This decree says on this one particular day. When the uh, you, when people are coming to attack you, you have the right to turn it on its head and attack them. And what this really speaks to us and reminds us of is this decree isn't about a holy war. This decree isn't to incarcerate the innocent. Look, Jesus comes from the Jewish people. This is about keeping the lineage of Jesus intact so a Messiah would come from this family, come from this, lin- this lineage, what the elimination of God's enemies really reveals to us is that God is a God of justice. And in our culture, in our context, in our lives, you may feel like there is no justice coming. Hang on. God is a God of justice, and every wrong that has been committed, he will make right. You may struggle to see that on this side, but God is a God of justice who will right every wrong. And so this dynamic duo develops and God uses them with His decree where the enemies of God are eliminated so the people of God can thrive. And then there's this third broad category where we see the making of a missionary. Sometimes sometimes a missionary is intentionally sent into a culture by God's people. We, we do this as Southern Baptists all the time. We send people on an intentional plan into a different culture and context. At other times, in the providence of God, God's people are already scattered in pagan places. And God's people are there On a divine assignment and appointment. Esther and Mordecai are God's people living in a pagan place, Persia. They're living in a culture that is full of sinners. And we begin to see how Esther and Mordecai begin to fulfill God's mission in that culture. Look at verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white and with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Mordecai has become a rock star. He and Esther are now the two most famous people in the whole Persian empire. Everything has changed. Verse 16 says, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. They had potluck for a long time. Amen. Praise Jesus, right? And many, look at this, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. It sounds like a minor detail. It sounds like it's minor. But it is of major importance... Many people align themselves with the Jews because of how God has revealed himself through Esther and Mordecai. How many people? Our text tells us many people. How many people does God want to save? Many people. How many people does God want to bring into the ministry of First Baptist Milton? Many people. How many churches does God want to plant? Many churches. How many missions does God want to start? Many missions. How many nations does God want to redeem? Many nations. The heart of God is many people. I pray, I hope, I trust that's your heart as well. Many people got converted, started worshiping the God of Esther and Mordecai. Tell us about your God who saved your life. We want to know him. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have received a divine assignment and you are sent to fulfill the mission of God. You are sent into your school. You are sent into your workplace. You are sent into your business. You are sent into your neighborhood. And you were sent there to share who Jesus is and to show who Jesus is and to speak as to what Jesus has done in your life. You think you live where you live because you found a good piece of land to build a house or you found a good deal on Zoom. You're not there. You are where you live because God God has appointed you there to be salt and light where you are. You think, well, I, I'm at this job because I worked hard for it, because I'm smart and I got promoted to it. No, you are there. You may, I'm not saying you're not smart. I kind of sound a little crash. Uh, I'm not saying that you're not smart and you, you don't need to be promoted. I'm saying the real reason you were there is to be salt and light. God has sent his people just as he did with Esther and Mordecai. He has sent his people into places that are not, Christian into places that are quote-unquote pagan, and he's called us to be salt and light. Friends, let's stop freaking out when the world acts like the world. The world's going to act like the world. Let's act like Jesus in the world. And as we act like Jesus, pagan culture, we can point people to him. It shouldn't shock us when the world sins. It should shock us and sadden us when God's people are silent. Esther and Mordecai are made into these missionaries. You know, ultimately, this points us to a person. I'll give you one guess as to what person it points us to Jesus. Jesus! That's right. For you know, Jesus came into a pagan culture, did he not? He left heaven he came to earth. He lives without sin, and he lives sent, calling people to repentance. But Jesus is a better missionary. Mordecai acted as an earthly savior because the people could not save themselves from death. Jesus is a heavenly savior for sinners who cannot save themselves. Mordecai was sentenced to death but rose up in authority and power to save people from death and to rule like a king. Jesus actually died and rose up from the grave to save people from eternal death and to rule not as a king but as the king of all kings. Mordecai allowed God's enemies to be killed for their sin. Jesus came to die for our sins even though we were his enemies. The death of God's enemies allowed God's people to live. Jesus died in the place of his enemies so that we might live. Without Mordecai, people would have endured a deadly wrath. Without Jesus, people will endure a deadly and eternal wrath. And just as God's enemies were destroyed in one day, so will all of God's enemies be destroyed on the day when our Lord returns to this earth, when our great God and Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself returns, all his enemies will be silenced forever. So my simple question to you is today, do you stand before God as a friend or an enemy? For you see, Jesus did the greatest missionary work, not for just Himself, but for me and you. He is the better missionary, so we do not have to spend an eternity separated from God. He's a better missionary so that we can be transferred from the kingdom of this world and brought into the kingdom of his marvelous light. Jesus came to die for you. If you were the only person on the face of the earth, you'd still be a sinner. And Jesus would still have come to die for you. That's how much he loves you. Do you have a relationship with him? Has there been a time in your life when you confessed your sin to God and you admitted your need for Jesus and and you placed your faith in him? If there hasn't been that time in your life, I can think of no better day than today to be the day when you stop becoming, when you stop being the enemy of God and you become the friend of God. In just a second after I pray and we stand and we sing, if, if you want to take that step to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, you can do that right where you are at your pew as best you know how to call out to God. Or if you've got a question you want someone to lead you through that process, then by all means, we'll have people who are available. You just come say, Pastor, I need to talk to someone. We'll get you right now to talk to someone. But what about those of us who made that decision in the past? Are we living in a way like Esther Mordecai lived in their culture that would point people to Jesus. May it never be said of the people of God that we did not speak up and share this glorious message of this glorious gospel, of this glorious king who's returning one day, and he's returning as my king because he is my savior. And I pray that you can say the same. Father God, I thank you that Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And I pray today, Father, that whatever step we need to take today, whatever that next step is, that we would take it, that we would place all of our faith and our hope and our trust in you. Have your will and your way in each heart that's in this room today. In his glorious name we pray. Amen.